So I'm going to talk about um, border regimes and human rights, but as perhaps um, Martin's introduction made clear, I'm coming to this from the perspective of uh, political philosophy, it's what I do, um, and therefore I, I think I <coughs> approach it somewhat differently. But this, the paper on which this talk is based, I've prepared for a conference uh, where most of the participants were international lawyers, and it quickly became clear that political philosophy and international law don't always take the same views about these uh, questions about, about human rights. So this will come clear as I proceed. Now, I suppose that um, uh, mo most of us would say that uh, border regimes presently are a major source of human rights violations. In fact, you might well argue, I think, that as far as um, liberal democratic states are concerned, what they do at their borders is probably the most um, damaging thing in terms of human rights. We're, we're very familiar with the kinds of um, horror stories about uh, how people, the kind of harms that befall people in the course of um, either legally or illegally trying to migrate into liberal democracy. We're all familiar with those kinds of examples, people on boats and so on, people being smuggled and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not um, here going to talk about these particular examples and these particular practices. I'm interested in a rather general question, which is whether there could be a rights-respecting border regime and what that would have to be like. And by a border regime, I mean both the policies and institutions that determine admission, but also what happens after admission, what the status of different categories of immigrants after admission, how, for example, illegal migrants are treated, how refugees are treated, and so on. So it's the whole thing. What would all that have to be like in order to um, respect human rights? Now, I think that to, to answer that question, you have also, also to um, take a position on two more basic issues. One is about the idea of human rights itself, how to understand the idea of human rights, what are human rights, how do we know when we, what is a human right when we see one. Uh, but also, in a second issue, I think, um, equally important, is, is how we're going to conceptualise the relation between the state and the immigrant who's trying to enter. Because uh, that relationship, it seems to me, is different on the one hand from the relation between a state and a citizen, which is constituted by a set of rights and responsibilities that holds within a state between citizens and the institution of <coughs> the state. We, sort of, we, know, we know, I think, how to think about that relation. We've developed elaborate theories about citizenship and social justice and so on and so forth. On the other hand, I think it's also different, the, the state-immigrant relationship, from the relationship between a state and a, a distant stranger, somebody in a, in a far-off place, to whom the state may owe certain kinds of um, uh, obligations, obligations not to harm, in some cases obligations to assist. Uh, but this is not a relationship characterised, for example, by reciprocity. So we have theories about uh, global justice that try to elaborate uh, that relationship. We have theories about social justice that tell us about 
relation between state and citizen. But the relation between the state and the prospective immigrant, I think, is different from both of these. Um, and I think that, that one crucial question is working out how far we should see the immigrant as already subject to the coercive power of the uh, state's law. And this may differ according to different types of immigrant in different stages <coughs> of the immigration process. And that's going to be the way I'm going to go um, in the conclusion to try and suggest that the, the different ways in which immigrants stand in relation to the state will affect the human rights situation. Now I've got to say a bit about um, how I understand human rights to get this um, argument off the ground. And my view is that although in understanding human rights we have to pay some attention to international law, we do also need to understand them from a more philosophical point of view. And my own view um, is to base human rights on fundamental human needs, universal human needs. So the way I would write the theory of human rights in a nutshell is that something is a human right when it forms an essential member of a set of rights that together provide their holder with the opportunity to lead a minimally decent life, to have their basic needs fulfilled. So um, the way that rights do this, I think, is to, first of all, to protect the, the right holder against a range of threats that would prevent them from leading a minimally decent life, threats in particular that are imposed by the state. And on the other hand, uh, rights impose positive obligations on states and on other entities to provide people with uh, various kinds of resources needed for subsistence, healthcare, and so on and so forth. Now, I think it's important that when we come to define human rights, we should do so in a way that is minimal. In other words, um, so the idea is there are certain things you need in order to have a minimally decent life, and those things you can claim a right to. But the right doesn't go beyond what's necessary. So, for example, you have a right to food, because food's an essential uh, part of a minimally decent life. But you don't have a right to any particular kind of food. You have preferences for different kinds of food, but they won't be included in the right. And that'll be important as I, as I go along. Uh, now, I think one final point is I think that the set of rights that together are going to provide this kind of protection for a minimally decent life. These rights are going to be both substantive and procedural. In other words, there are going to be rights to things, to, for example, to various kinds of resources, various kinds of freedoms. But on the other hand, there are also going to be uh, rights, such as the right to equality before the law, rights to a fair trial, and so on, which are essentially procedural in nature and are needed in order to secure and guarantee those substantive rights. So you, you don't have a right to freedom or a right to security unless those are protected by a second set of rights that uh, govern the way in which, for example, are treated by the state or by the law. So I think that when we're thinking about um, the issue of borders and border regimes, 
it's very often actually the procedural rights that are going to be the focus of our attention, rather more than standard ones. I'll sort of try and uh, illustrate that as I as I go along. <coughs> now then, what about um, border regimes and uh, how, how they're going to be <coughs> consistent or not consistent uh, with human rights? Well, I think the first and most fundamental question is whether any set of border controls is actually uh, human rights compliant or whether, as open borders advocates argue, there are human rights to movement, to free movement, international free movement, that actually mean that no uh, set of border controls is legitimate. So this would be an argument that there's actually a human right to migrate, meaning a human right to cross borders and to settle in any place of your choosing. Now clearly this is not um, a right, a human right, that you find in the uh, human rights documents. If you look at the, the covenants and the charters which define human rights, they don't contain uh, a human right to migrate in that form. There's a right of exit laid down in the original UN Declaration that's reiterated. People have a right to leave their own state but they don't have a right freely to move around and settle wherever they choose. But, uh, as I said, I don't think that um, a theory of human rights need to be tied, needs to be tied in a very tight way to uh, international law documents. Yeah. Having a philosophical theory, we've got to be open to the possibility that uh, there is such a human right. Well, I'm skeptical about this, but let's see what the arguments are in its favour. Well, I think there are two main avenues that people have used to try and defend uh, a human right to migrate. And the first is to argue that um, it's a simple corollary of the right of exit. If you're going to have a right of exit, you must have a right to enter, otherwise the right of exit is purely formal and effectively meaningless. And uh, since I'm uh, I, I certainly accept the right of exit and think that uh, the right to, to get out of a country which may be denying you freedom, subsistence and so on is an essential way of protecting and fulfilling your basic needs. Um, the question I face is whether this would entail almost logically a right of entry. Well I think that the answer is it doesn't because um, all that's required to have a right of exit is that there should be somewhere that you can exit to, some other place that you can exit to. So bearing in mind the point I made a few moments ago about human rights having to be understood as minimal protections, I think you can't arrive an unlimited right of migration just by observing that the right of exit can only be meaningful you have somewhere to move to. So one way of thinking about that is, supposing you did have, we don't have at the moment, supposing you do have a managed system of international migration uh, where um, people's migratory opportunities are regulated by some international body, then provided that system provides everybody with at least one opportunity to move from their present state of residence, the right of exit is going to be fulfilled. 
but there won't be a completely free ride of free movement. So that's the first argument, which I think doesn't get you to the right of migration. There's also, I think, a more basic argument that's <coughs> quite popular with uh, open borders advocates, people like uh, Joseph Perrins, for example. And this points to certain basic human interests that uh, may only be possible to satisfy by a free choice of country to move to. So typically people say, well, you might fall in love with somebody who's living in a different country, or you might come to have religious commitments that you can only properly express by moving to somewhere where a religious community of a certain kind exists, a religion that's not represented uh, in your present country of residence. So um, wouldn't this mean that in order to, uh, to, to fulfill these basic interests, you must have an unlimited right to migrate. Well, I think my answer to this is that the interests that are being used here to ground the right are actually, what they actually are, are very specific forms of a more general interest. So we have a general interest in being able to uh, find a partner or to practice a religion. And then a particular person is going to have a specific interest to uh, come into, into contact with this particular partner or practice this particular religion. But I don't think a human right can be tailored in such a way uh, that it can actually protect individual and specific interests. So this game goes back to the point that human rights have to be conceived minimally. You have a right to food, but not a right to any specific kind of food. In the same way, you have a right to associate with others for purposes like finding love, practicing religion, and so on. But you don't have a right, I think, to associate with a particular partner of your choice or a particular religious community. In other words, the right is a right to a reasonable range of opportunities, but they have to be specified uh, in a generic way and not specifically. Now, of course, this does raise a question, and sometimes this point is a kind of challenge, which is, but if that's the case, why do we, in domestic cases, interpret the rights more widely to include uh, within, within, within states the right to freedom of religion is understood to be the right to practice any religion. Uh, the right to freedom of movement is understood to be the right to move anywhere within the borders of the state. These are quite extensive. And I think that the answer to that is that Interpreting the right in that extensive way in domestic settings is necessary in order for the right to function as an effective protection against the state. Somebody within a state is vulnerable to the state in a way that, that means that their human rights have to have this rather general and broad character. If you allow a state to begin to limit internal freedom of movement, this would give it a great deal of power to discriminate against unpopular groups, unpopular ethnic groups, unpopular political groups, and so on. The same, I think, with true freedom of religion. But I don't think you can argue that that same level of vulnerability exists in the case of international movement. And so I think the argument that explains the, the scope of the domestic right doesn't show that the international human right should be interpreted so broadly. So what I want to 
say then is that the, the very existence of border controls and migration restrictions doesn't violate human rights as such. So there isn't a right of free movement that means that any restriction of movement across borders is going to be in violation of it. So now what now more specifically, if we're going to have border regimes, there are going to be some limitations, what do they have to be like to comply with human rights? And um, I'm going to talk about three aspects. There are other aspects too, so it's not, not a, 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 meant to be comprehensive, but three main aspects. The first has to do with the, the rights of refugees and the issue about whether states are obliged to, to admit every refugee who applies to them. The <coughs> second issue is about immigrants who are not refugees. And the question there is, is a discriminatory admissions policy a violation of human rights? And if so, under what circumstances? Is, is choosing who to admit among people who are not refugees, may this be a violation of human rights? Is human rights against discrimination. Third question is going to be about illegal immigrants, people who've already got inside. Um, and the issue is, what about their human rights? What human rights do they have against the state that they've entered? So those are going to be three topics I'm going to try and say something about. Now I think it's just important to preface this by saying that what I'm focusing on here is what a human rights compliant border regime has to be like, which is not the same question as what immigration policy should a state have? What's the best kind of immigration policy for a state to have? Now my view is that that second question is in general something that a democratic state is entitled <coughs> to decide upon, which doesn't mean that I think they're all equally good or there are no considerations of justice, fairness, and so on, that apply to them. But I'm just focusing here on this narrow question of human rights, because, presumably, we would want to say that a, a human rights violating uh, immigration policy is illegitimate. States are not entitled to have immigration policies that violate human rights. They are entitled to have immigration policies that are bad, ill-judged, unfair, and so on. That's up to them, in a sense, to, to decide. OK, so uh, refugees, the first issue, where I use a fairly conventional definition of a refugee as somebody whose human rights are at serious risk in the place that they currently uh, reside. So there are different, I'm sure you know, there are wider and narrower definitions of who a refugee is, what kind of threat they have to be under in order to count as a refugee. I'm taking a reasonably broad definition, probably broader than international lawyers would like here, as refugee somebody whose human rights are seriously at risk if they remain where they currently are. First question is whether refugees have an automatic right of entry to the state of first application, bearing in mind that the distribution of applicants between states it's typically going to be very uneven. It's going to be affected by all kinds of contingencies, opportunities to move to particular places, preferences among refugees about which state they want to enter and so on. So there's no, there's no reason to suppose that refugees are going to sort of 
distribute themselves evenly across across states. Now, um, the international law position here, of course, is that the state receives a refugee, having established that they have genuine refugee status, is simply under obligation not to return them to the country from which they're coming, in which they're at risk, which is not quite the same as saying that it has to accept them. So you can think about three possible ways in which states could react and handle refugees consistently with that principle. And I'll sort of list them in sort of decreasing order of attractiveness from the point of view of the refugee. So it's not the best outcome, it seems to me, for refugees and moving through to the worst. So I think the best solution would be to have, as some people have proposed, some kind of internationally managed system of refugee flows so that refugees are sort of directed towards states that are willing to receive them on the basis of some kind of international agreement about how, how many refugees each particular state is willing to accept. So that I think is the, um, from the refugees' point of view, the most, uh, the best, the best system that they could want to have. Then secondly, we can imagine a system of bilateral arrangements whereby states who don't want to take in particular refugees enter into agreements with third states who are willing to accept refugees, uh, perhaps in, in, in return for some kind of monetary compensation. So that refugees are not returned to their state from which they come, but they're directed towards a third state in which they can have uh, refugee status. And we know that that kind of arrangement uh, uh, exists already in some cases. And then the third mechanism you might imagine is a system basically where states stem the flow of refugees by preventing numbers of them from actually arriving at the borders, their borders, which effectively I think is the system that's very often in place now. So you stop people getting onto ships or airplanes, stop them coming actually to the border by um, sort of outsourcing the protection to the state from which the refugee is coming. Now, it seems to me pretty clear that the third solution is not human rights respecting, because the effect of that system, I think we can see this, is going to be that significant numbers of genuine refugees are actually unable to get access to any state that's likely to take them in by virtue of these deterrence mechanisms that are put in place by states who are um, not wanting to take them. So I think that has that's the larger the current status quo has to be ruled out on human rights grounds. The first system, a managed international system, which I say is the, seems to be the best solution, is I'm supposing politically unfeasible for the moment at least. There's no, there's no, although these systems have been proposed, the feasibility of them actually coming into existence seems to be quite remote. So I think the interesting questions are about the second and about the conditions under which these bilateral arrangements would be uh, human rights compliant. Because it seems to me here what's often happening is that refugees are being directed away from states they like to enter into third countries, perhaps developing countries, which are less attractive, have less good conditions for life. Uh, perhaps they've been put into, into camps and so forth. And so the question is, is this consistent with human rights? 
Well, I think it's very arguable. That's going to depend on how good or bad these conditions are and about whether, I think, in effect, this kind of arrangement is going to allow people, bearing in mind that the kind of right at the bottom of the argument is this notion of a minimally decent life, a life that has certain kinds of properties to it, can people lead a minimally decent life under this sort of arrangement? And that, I think it's not going to be good enough to say that people are sheltered and fed and so on in refugee camps. They're going to have to have more than that. They're going to have the, have to have the opportunity to work, raise families and so on and so forth, live the kind of life that we recognise as minimally decent. And so I think, although I'm not kind of legislating about whether any kind of bilateral arrangement is acceptable or not, I think we'd have a standard by which we could judge whether these arrangements, when they're put in place, are going to be human rights uh, compliant or not. Okay, so that's, for the moment, what I want to say about the case of refugees and about what I think uh, the conditions are for a, a human rights compliant regime. Now I want to say a bit about the issue of um, discrimination. In a broad, sort of neutral sense, states do discriminate when they select immigrants on the basis of work skills, so on and so forth. But sometimes, more in the past than perhaps now, they've also discriminated on other grounds, race, religion and so on, selecting on grounds that might be thought to be questionable. And so my question is, would this be a human rights breach if, if, if a state were to, for example, practice racial discrimination in admission? Well, I think this is an interesting question because there is a human right against discrimination. It's there in the original UN Declaration. But like a lot of things in that declaration, the meaning of that provision is actually rather unclear. So it's not clear whether it applies to this case or not. We have to ask, well, why is there a human right against discrimination? What's the basis of it? We start from the kind of approach that I'm suggesting. Why would uh, discrimination prevent somebody from leading a minimally decent life? Well, I think that the answer probably comes down to two things, two kind of reasons why uh, discrimination is a human right against discrimination. <coughs> I think the first is that an anti-discrimination right does serve a protective function. That's to say, if the state is prohibited from discriminating against groups, particularly through the law, then this provides protection against, for example, unpopular minority groups. Because if you're going to restrict people, and because you have an anti-discrimination provision, any, any restriction is going to have to apply to everybody, then I think that's going to be a kind of safeguard against the state's potential wish to target and exploit and oppress a minority. So I think it's partly for that reason the right against discrimination is uh, there in the human rights documents. But I think there's another basis too, and I think this is connected because I think one of the human needs that would feature in a, my account of a minimally decent life is the human need for recognition. What I mean by that is that in order to lead a human life, you've got to engage in a range of practices with other people. You've got to engage in a social life. You've got to be accepted in the kind of practices that are prevalent in your society. You've got to be recognised as a legitimate participant in those uh, practices. So somebody who is excluded uh, by, let's say, a practice of shunning, people won't engage with them, won't talk to them, won't recognise them, 
can't, I think, lead a decent life because they're not being recognised as a participant. So I think that where discriminatory laws or practices violate this underlying need for recognition, then I think the human rights against discrimination comes into play. So I think these are the reasons why we have a human right against discrimination um, and why, why states can't discriminate in those ways. But now the question is, how does all this play out in the case of the relation between the state and the immigrant, who, let's remember, is not, we're considering somebody who's sort of putting in an application, not yet a member of the society, wants to come in, but isn't yet inside. So it's not really subject to the authority of the state, except in the negative sense that if the state says no, they're not going to come in. Now, I think it must then be doubtful whether under these circumstances, a discriminatory policy is actually a violation of human rights. Because all the state is doing at this point is actually refusing entry. It's not, as it were, controlling or imposing upon a person's life in, a, in, a, in any other respect. It's not preventing that person from pursuing other kinds of goals. So it's not, refusal of admission is not really like, for example, apartheid. Sometimes people make these kind of comparisons. And apartheid is a system which, in an overall sense, regulates a person's life and the opportunities available to them. So the, the discriminatory nature of apartheid clearly constitutes a human rights violation. But I think that the relation between state and immigrant is different because it's only along one dimension that the state is preventing the would-be immigrant pursuing their goals. What about the other ground, the failure of recognition? Well, I think that the, the issue that we have to confront there is that the recognition that's being denied is not recognition by a relevant group. In other words, because the immigrant is not already inside the society, by being prevented from joining, there's no failure of recognition by uh, a group from whom recognition could be uh, expected. So, supposing, for example, um, uh, I was to apply to enter Iran, let's say, and was refused. Okay, so I've not been recognised by Iranians, but then my view might be, why should they recognise me? I have no real claim of recognition against Iranians. <coughs> so I think that argument too is not going to go through. Now, I'm saying all this not in order to uh, defend discriminatory policies, because I think that discrimination is both unjust and it's insulting to the people discriminated against. And I think therefore that <coughs> liberal states should follow liberal principles of equal treatment in their immigration policies, even when dealing with outsiders. I think it's part of what follows from being a liberal state. That you, you practice uh, policies of equality, even in relation to outsiders. So I'm not defending these policies in any sense. It's more a matter of working out why we object to them. And since I say my argument here is entirely about human rights, uh, what I'm claiming is that there isn't actually uh, human rights grounds for objecting to discriminatory policies. Now, the final issue I want to say a few things about is the, the position of illegal immigrants and their human rights. So notice that here we're talking about people who've entered the state and are already, therefore, subject to comprehensive state authority. They're inside the society. They're under the state. 
they're vulnerable to the state and under its authority. So I think there are three points that need to be made about their position and their human rights. But I think the first is that although they've probably broken some law in the process of getting into the country, they can't seem to be treated as criminals. After all, they may be claiming refugee status. So until that's established, they can't be treated just as, as though they were criminals. So although I think states are entitled in these circumstances to obtain assurances that people who have been uh, legally processed are going to comply with that procedure, for example, turn up <coughs> when they're required to in court, and this may mean that I think you can't categorically rule out detention in some circumstances, people who are waiting a legal ruling. The loss of rights has to be minimal, the minimal loss of rights that's going to be necessary for the state to, to operate its procedures. So I think illegal immigrants don't lose rights in the way that criminals do. Uh, any loss of rights has to be minimal. Second point is that because an illegal immigrant is physically on the state's territory and subject to its authority, I think the state must guarantee the substantive rights of this person uh, while they're there. In other words, they may not get the full rights of citizens, all the rights that come with citizenship, but basic human rights to subsistence, to body security protection, protection against violence, to healthcare and so on, must be provided by the state to illegal immigrants. There's a distinction between full citizenship rights and basic rights, and it's the basic rights that must be provided. And third, I think that for the same reason, illegal immigrants have a right to a reasonable procedure for determining their actual status, in particular, whether they uh, qualify for asylum or not. Now, I think lawyers will, at this point, some lawyers take over and will start to argue about what exactly a reasonable procedure is, whether it has to be a kind of full apparatus courts and appeals and judicial review and so on and so on, whether it can be something that's simpler and more administrative. But I think, again, by virtue of the fact that the illegal immigrant is now vulnerable to the actions of the state, they're also entitled to procedural protections that will prevent their human rights from being abused while their status is being finally, uh, finally determined. Now, you, you might think, I'm still that, you might think there's something of a paradox here, because here we're comparing somebody who's applying from outside and is, so to speak, playing by the rules and maybe is going to get refused entry, comparing that person with somebody who's entered illegally uh, and who I'm saying has these quite significant claims against the state that they've entered, whereas the first person doesn't. So the illegal immigrant um, gets more rights. But I think that this, um, this difference is actually a simple corollary of the idea of a territorial state, because the authority of a territorial state does depend on its ability to protect the rights of everybody who's resident on the territory, not just its own citizens. Anybody who have a territorial state and has a jurisdiction Anybody who comes within that jurisdiction is entitled to have their rights protected by the state. And that's the condition under which the state is legitimate. So being inside, physically being inside, makes a difference for that reason. So I think that 
takes us right back, I'm just, just concluding here, to the point I made right at the beginning, which is that this whole question, I think, what, what are the human rights implications of border regimes, has to be understood in terms of the different relations that immigrants can stand in in relation to states. And so what we found is that the answer in human rights terms is going to be that different categories of immigrants stand in different relations to the state and therefore have different sets of rights against the state. So we, we talked about refugees on the one hand, and then I talked about um, people who just want to come in as immigrants for, let's say, economic reasons and academics applying for jobs in another country or whatever. Uh, this is the issue about discrimination in those cases. And then I talked about illegal migrants who've actually already come onto the territory and now confronting the state. And what I'm trying to argue is that a rights-respecting border regime is going to have to respond differently to each of these categories of people. And this, in the end, comes down to the different ways in which they've become vulnerable and subject to the authority of the receiving state. 